Last night, uh, when I got home from Toshley, I discovered that the, my grandfather's watch, the, the band was broken. That's okay because parts have broken before and they've been replaced and the watch still does what it's done for a long time. And this morning, when I was on my way here, Google Maps gave me a new route and I thought I'd take it. But I got stuck in traffic, and as my blinker beat to the rhythm of my heart, and then slower than the rhythm of my heart, I realized that sometimes when we try new things, it gets us to where we're trying to go faster, and sometimes it doesn't. 20 years ago, my sister moved to San Francisco, and since then we've spent the second day of Rosh Hashanah together nearly every year. It's usually just the two of us, primarily because nobody else in our families really wants to go to services. We went to Beth Shalom until in 2017, Congregation Emmanuel held second day services for the first time, thanks to the leadership of former President Donnie Friend, among others. What does it mean that such a profound new old tradition began in our then 169-year-old congregation. The founders of this synagogue would never have done such a thing as to hold a second day of Rosh Hashanah service. As former membership director Terry Krauss said to me the other day, they would be rolling in their graves at the idea. And yet, here we are. The founders would also likely object to our prayer books, and our guitars and drums, nor would they accept all of our clergy. Change and reform, though, is something we Jews do. No doubt those same founders' grandparents would object to the worship service that they established. In answering the question, how old is Reform Judaism, renowned scholar Jacob Petakowski argued we have to go back before Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise in the 19th century, before Enlightenment philosopher Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century, before the first law codes in the 12th century, and he might have added before the Mishnah in the 3rd century and the Sanhedrin in the 1st century. We need to go, he wrote, all the way back to the prophets and the Tanakh, our Bible. Our Bible. Each of these figures, or sets of figures, fundamentally changed what it meant to be Jewish leading Petakowski to argue that reform is as old as Judaism itself. We change and reform and grow because we remain in search of something. What is that something? When I was a child in Hebrew school, the answer to the question, why be Jewish, was often explicitly or implicitly Rabbi philosopher Emil Fackenheim's famous dictum, don't give Hitler a posthumous victory. Keep our traditions alive, go to services, read our texts, because otherwise the Nazis may as well have won. For people in my generation, for those of us whose grandparents escaped Germany and who swung from the strong arms of our grandparents' friends before they explained what the numbered tattoo meant, those words carry weight. That reasoning, though, just isn't enough 
It's not good enough to keep our people alive just to keep it alive. And it's not a compelling reason to live a Jewish life. We, two generations and more, removed from that great trauma, need better answers for why to be Jewish. My answer builds on what my parents taught me, that our people's job is to create a caring, compassionate society. The purpose of the Jewish project on one foot, my opinion, is to craft a way of life that gives us spiritual strength to shape an honest, just, and compassionate world, something we are still learning how to do. We read sacred texts not as history, but as a match that ignites the spirit within us. Our symbols, our rituals, and our texts, they rouse us. They remind us of what is important in life and inspire us to do what needs doing. They cause us to vibrate at a frequency that amplifies our life force. That happens not because our traditions are better than anyone else's, but because they are ours. Because in this place, we feel something we don't feel anywhere else. This place, our synagogue, our symbols, our rituals, traditions, and the vast treasury of our people's spiritual resources are where we come when we need inner strength. We should not expect anyone or any text to give us answers, but we can expect stimuli to help us find our own. When on occasion in my work in Oakland schools and more recently I have felt depleted, I've gained strength through studying sacred text and praying in community and privately. I've come to think of it as a corollary to physical therapy, but for my spirit. You go to physical therapy when something is wrong, but you go to the gym to build strength so you don't need physical therapy regularly. Study and ritual builds the strength of our soul's connective fiber. By the way, we need better vocabulary. But this is a synagogue, and I'm a student rabbi, so I say things like soul's connective fiber. It sounds a little woo, but it's what I've got for now, and I'm convinced there's a there there. And I'm convinced that part of what inhibits transmission of our tradition is that we don't often enough articulate what we want to pass on, nor why. I've shared what I think our people's project is, and I would be curious to hear what you would say. Our answers to what draw us may be different, yet for each of us, the question remains, how do we, who love our tradition so much, we, second day of Rosh Hashanah Jews, pass on our tradition to our children and grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our families of choice, and our students in a way that lights them up as it lights us up? I believe we find clues in our Rosh Hashanah texts. Our Torah portion, the Akedah, that my friend Anita Barsman chanted so beautifully. The binding of Isaac, it's just 19 verses long. Its power lies in part in its multivocality. At the beginning of the story, Abraham is put to the test. And since we're Jews, we can't even agree on what the test was. We just read the story, and if you'd like to reread it on page 240 of your prayer book, 
I'd be curious how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you think when Abraham took his beloved son up the mountain, bound him, and held up the knife, that he passed the test? How many think he failed the test? Just for those of you out there, it's a little weighted on the side of failed. How many say he neither passed nor failed? Or neither one? We got some hands for that. The good news is all of you are in good company. Lots of rabbis and scholars argue that Abraham passed. Plenty say Abraham failed. Some say he passed because he demonstrated unflagging faith in God by being willing to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. Some say it wasn't really a test at all. Abraham partnered with God to demonstrate that God abhors human sacrifice in all its forms. Those who say Abraham failed point to the fact that God never speaks directly to Abraham again, instead having a messenger speak with him. Some say Abraham failed to argue with God on behalf of the innocent, as he had just done in the prior story about Sodom and Gomorrah. And some say Abraham failed by injecting trauma into the DNA of our people. An important lesson for us who wish to transmit our tradition to the next generation is the very openness to interpretation the text presents. When we model giving our texts the respect of interrogating them and wrestling with them, it implicitly teaches that our stories, the stories we find on parchment and the stories which we live, call for sense-making. When we don't do that, when we don't do it with our own lives, we feel flat. When we do the work of making meaning, particularly when we do it together, we connect to one another and to something greater than ourselves, giving children the opportunity to make meaning, even when, perhaps especially when, their meaning subverts our own, ultimately may be the only way to successfully pass on the tradition we love. The idea of identifying new and different interpretations in our text, it's been core to our people from the beginning. Even the Talmud, the most extensive work approximating a legal text until the 12th century, it's full of this phrase, devar acher. Devar acher means another opinion, another idea. The Talmud isn't really a legal text at all. It's a series of conflicting opinions and disagreements about matters which it almost never offers a conclusion to. The conclusion is left to us, the student. As a Jewish educator, I love seeing students' faces light up as they discuss what a text means and whether or why it has value. Our own Rabbi Lawrence Kushner tells the story of, a pre of preschool students to whom he was giving a tour of the synagogue. He saved the ark for last, and not wanting to rush it, when the teacher frantically pointed at her watch, he said we'd say he'd save the ark for another time. Between visits, the teacher later told him, the students had a debate about what was in the ark. One student said, there's nothing in the ark. The other, another student said, there's a brand new car. One correctly said the Torah. 
And then a student said, you're all wrong. What's behind those curtains is a mirror. Giving our youth opportunities to make meaning of our most precious texts conveys to them that we believe they know something we do not. Our tradition is clear that they do. Our Midrash teaches that even the question of the student to the master is part of what God revealed at Sinai. And French Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas takes it a step further, saying, even the question of the student to the teacher is an ineluctable articulation of revelation at Sinai. Ineluctable, meaning absolutely necessary. We need our children's ideas and their questions to put the whole puzzle together. All we need to do to know that we haven't put it together yet is to look around at our world. When we pass our tradition on, let it not be as a trophy or as a broken watch that can be repaired just to do what it has always done, but as an unfinished ecosystem that we entrust to the next generation to improve upon and take closer to completion, the crafting of a way of life, spiritual for the individual, just and compassionate as a society. Our Haftarah this morning offers further guidance. We read just now in Jeremiah 31 that with Ahavat Olam and unending love, God loves us. And so we call out Hashiveni Ashuva, return me and I will return. The Haftarah reminds us, parents, grandparents, aunts, cousins, role models, friends, that the more children feel our unending love, as they experience us, drawing strength from lighting the Shabbat candles, honoring the, honoring the temporariness of life, building a sukkah, describing the loved one we think of when we hear a particular melody, or trying to find words for why holding our hands to the Havdalah candle touches us in a special place. The more they feel our unending love when we do those things, the more they'll understand that our set of symbols and rituals holds power that can make their lives more full and may just hold the seed to repairing our suffering world. At the same time as we entrust our next generation with our precious project, let's not be surprised or bothered when they reinterpret it or subvert it. After all, though our temple founders and their forebears might be shocked by our innovations and reclamation of ritual, they would also be moved by the magnificence of our expression of our tradition. Hannah Arendt wrote that we love our children enough not to expel them from our world and leave them to their own devices, nor to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. This then is our job, not to, not to deprive our children of our tradition and not to suppress their natural inclination to create something unforeseen that moves forward our unfinished project, 
the crafting of a way of life, spiritual for the individual, just and compassionate as a society. Shana Tovah.